Welcome back, Hemming Brainiacs, for a podcast of excellence. Talking about Christopher Marlowe. Interesting character, I presume. Actually, I don't know much about him, but I do know of his uh, name, you know. I know his name, and I know there was some little Shakespeare slash Marlowe controversy, and I don't understand it, and I'm keen to, so let's dive into it. And, by the way, before we start, I'm going to mention this comment that I liked. Today we're reading Shakespeare, after we discuss Marlowe. Acoustic Eel says, Should we maybe take several days for Shakespeare? He has a lot of poems in here, and he's pretty an imp- a pretty important dude. So, I like that idea. I actually kind of thought of that as well before I'd read that comment. I had the idea, and I was like, eh, I don't know if people would be into that. But it seems... Um, that that's the case so we'll read two per day two Shakespeare poems per day which means I think we'll be on Shakespeare for two or three days I think I'm not really sure how many poems he's got in this book but uh, let me have a quick look actually oh okay wait a minute he's got he's got like 40 poems that means we'd be doing 20 days of Shakespeare, maybe that's a bit much. Um, hmm, it's 25 pages of Shakespeare. So let's say five pages. Five pages per day. What do you reckon? Um, yeah, that's five days of Shakespeare. I like that. Another thing I should mention as well is in yesterday's reading, um, I accidentally read two poems. I thought they were both by Marlowe, but actually the second of those poems was a reply to Marlowe's poem, but it was written by Sir Walter Raley. I even read out loud the text written by Sir Walter Raley, but I think I thought I it would just meant like it was from a perspective because the poem's called Her Reply, so I thought maybe it's like a character perspective or something. I don't know. I just kept reading. Anyway, Ah, so, we read two poets yesterday, today we're going to read a little bit of Shakespeare. Anyway, Swim says to my fish, he says, Marlowe's poem was instantly recognisable to me. I'm pretty sure I encountered it in my high school, British literature class. Rayleigh's reply is hilarious, what a dash of cold water. Marlowe's poem is about carpe diem, seizing the day, and the immediate gratification of their sexual passion. Love in the May countryside will be like a return to the Garden of Eden. There is a tradition that our problems are caused by having too many restrictions by society. If we could get away from these rules, we could return to a pristine condition of happiness. He hopes to return with the nymph... nymph, (coughs) Excuse me. Nymph to an Edenic life of free love in nature. Rayleigh argues that it is not society that taints sexual love. We are already tainted before we enter society. Rayleigh combines Carpe Dan with Tempest Fuji. (laughs) Excuse me. In an unusual way. Normally, we would seize the day because time flies. Rayleigh argues that because time flies, we should not seize the day. There will be consequences to their role in the grass. Time does not stand still. Winter inevitably follows the spring. Therefore, we cannot act on impulses until we have examined the consequences. The world is not young. 
We are not in Eden, but in the old fallen world, a world in which shepherds have actually been known to lie to their nymphs. Very cool. Tekrific says this was a really interesting point of contention between these two poets. It's like they preceded the contention between the philosophers Rousseau, who thought that like Marlowe, and Hobbes, who thought like Rayleigh. The nature, fallacy, romantic idea of nature as untainted, etc., is still a point of contention today. Some people today are only capable of diagnosing the problems with our civilization and yearn for some natural state where human beings are returned to a natural order from the constraints society has placed upon them. I think this is a false idea, but many seem to find it compelling. Um, TA131901 says, I'm looking forward to the discussion of Marvell's To His Coy Mistress, which explored the same themes, er, as best as I can remember from high school lit. Everyone in my class was too shy to explain what Marvell wanted from his coy mistress. Ha ha. <laughs> uh, so, Swim has come in and said, This has sent me down a bit of an internet rabbit hole. Just like how there are praise poems as a genre, there's also carpe diem poems as a genre. Uh, carpe diem poems aim to instruct the readers or make them understand, celebrate the present rather than focusing on the past or future. Often used in love poems, it encourages the lovers or the beloved to live the moment at hand, even by breaking the laws, as in Andrew Marvel's To His Coy Mistress and many other poems. Looking forward to that. And here we go. Swim has also filled us in on what was going on between Shakespeare and Marlowe. They weren't rivals per, they, per se, although Shakespeare's biographer, Jonathan Bate, has suggested that Marlowe and Shakespeare became locked in competition where each influenced the other. In fact, scholars have been questioning the writing of Shakespeare's works for over 300 years, but while it was long known Shakespeare collaborated with many other writers, there was no way to prove with whom and to what extent. With the advent of big data as a tool for analysis, researchers were able to scan thousands of texts for unique patterns of word usage and phrasing. These were compared to known credited works for each author to identify and compare their signature style. Using these methods, Marlowe was found to be the primary writer of Henry VI, Part One, while Shakespeare stands as the sole author as part of Part Three and who is responsible for part two is still up for debate. There is a small of coterie, coterie of scholars who adhere to the Marlowian theory, i.e. Marlowe faked his death and is the real author of Shakespeare's works. Other authors have been put forward as well. Wikipedia has a good article called uh, Shakespeare Authorship Question. Very interesting. Um, the thing about analyzing the text and seeing you know being able to tell who wrote part one and part two and part three of henry the sixth is dubious i would say because what you can do as a writer is get a bit of a run-up where you will read and recite and maybe even transcribe uh, a piece of work by another author or even by yourself in a particular style to get that syntax locked into your mind and then continue and your mind kind of rewires around that syntax 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 am i saying that right wow man i feel dyslexic today 
Syntax is a word I've said a million times. Syntax. <clears throat> um, and you can rewire it, even temporarily. You know, if you... Um, for example... I remember when I was a young man, it's probably around 2005, I got really into podcasts, well before even iPhones. You know, I had to put these podcasts on my um, iPod. And I loved the Russell Brand podcast at this time. Now, this is early Russell Brand when he was just a radio show host for BBC. Um, I remember this was before Forgetting Sarah Marshall even kind of came out. And I would listen and listen and listen. And for a few years, I kept listening and listening and listening. And then there was a time when I traveled and I went on international flights and trains and I was just by myself for a long, long time. And I binged, binged, binged hundreds of episodes hundreds of hours of Russell Brand and for a while I just kind of like almost spoke in his accent you know it wore off on me just from being so immersed in it I guess that happens when you go to any other country with an accent you know after a little while you absorb the accent it's a little bit like that but it's a bit more immediate with writing you can mimic an author's voice by immersing yourself in their voice as a run-up and then immediately starting writing your own thing you can sort of mimic their voice so uh you know maybe shakespeare just read a lot of marlowe immediately before writing part one um we don't know it's impossible to know i don't i don't really think that that big data thing is as clever as it thinks it is well maybe it is who do i well you know what do i know uh, all right, let's read a couple of Shakespeare poems. Exciting, hey? Uh, okay, so how many shall we read here? Um, it's kind of hard to break it up by pages because the page count's a bit awkward on here. So let's just say, let's say five poems per day let's say five poems per day and just do that i know i said two in the comments but i'm changing my mind the first one's called sylvia by the way shakespeare was born in 1564 and died 1616 sylvia who is sylvia what is she that all our swains commend her holy fair and wise is she the heaven such grace did lend her that she might admired be is she kind as she is fair, for beauty lives with kindness, love doth to her eyes repair to help him of his blindness, and being helped inhabits there. Then to Sylvia let us sing, that Sylvia is excelling, she excels each mortal thing upon the dull earth dwelling, to her let us garlands bring. This one's called The Blossom. On a day, alack, the day. Love, whose month is ever May, spied a blossom passing fair, playing in the wanton air. Through the velvet leaves the wind all unseen, gan passage find, that the lover sick to death, wished himself the heaven's breath. Air, quoth he, thy cheeks may blow, air would I, might triumph so. But alack, my hand is sworn, never to pluck thee from thy thorn. Vow, alack, for youth unmeet, Youth so apt to pluck a sweet. Do not call it sin in me, That I am forsworn for thee, 
thou for whom even Jove would swear Juno but an Ethiop were, and deny himself full of Jove, turning mortal for thy love. This one is called Spring and Water, part one. When daisies pied and violets blue, and ladies' smocks all silver white, and cuckoo buds of yellow hue do paint the meadows with delight, the cuckoo then on every tree mocks married men, for thus sings he, cuckoo. Cuckoo, cuckoo, O word of fear, unpleasing to the married ear. When shepherds pipe on oaten shores, and merry larks are ploughmen's clocks, and turtles tread in rooks and doors, and maidens bleach their summer smocks, the cuckoo then on every tree mocks married men, for thus sings he, cuckoo. Cuckoo, cuckoo, O word of fear, unpleasing to the married ear. Number two. When icicles hang by the wall, and Dick the shepherd blows his nail, and Tom bears logs into the hall, and milk comes frozen home in pail, when blood is nipped, and ways be foul, then nightly sings the staring owl, to wit, to who, a merry note, while greasy Joan doth keel the pot. When all aloud the wind doth blow, and coughing drowns the parson's soul, and birds sit brooding in the snow, and Maria's nose, Marion's nose looks red and raw. When roasted crabs hiss in the bowl, then nightly sings the staring owl, to wit, to woo, a merry note, while greasy Joan doth keel the pot. There you go. All right. Do we stop there? I think we stopped there. I don't know how many that was. I think it was, might actually have been four, but I can see that the next poem is part of a quite a long series of five poems, and I don't want to go five more. So, we'll stop there. Spring and Water, Part 1 and 2. Um, cool. You know, so far in life, I've only ever read Shakespeare's uh, sonnets when it comes to poems. Um, and I honestly didn't even really know he had other poems outside of his sonnets. So, this has been cool. This has been cool. To wit, to woo. Um, to wit, to woo. <laughs> All right, folks. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow.